The unconscious is often giving us instructions on what to do with the world, what to do with our feelings. So if we go back to your observation, I don't know how how to be a CEO right now. I'm going to suggest to you, go upstairs. And what does that mean? That means the higher order function, the higher faculty. Now, what does that mean in this context? Well, I'll bring your attention back to the work of Viktor Frankl, whom I'm sure you know his work, Man's Search for Meaning. What he sought to understand was a very profound question. Why did some survive and others not? Why did some people break and others not? And what he hit upon was the notion of logotherapy. And what logotherapy basically says is that the way to heal ourselves is to go to the second floor. And the second floor in this case is purpose, is meaning. Why do we do what we do? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I get asked a lot, how did you end up doing this work? When I really think about it, my path to here started in a moment of deep pain on December 18th, 2005. That was the day my mom, Laurie Putt, died after an 18-month battle with breast cancer at the age of 52. The day after she passed, I wrote a blog post called The Most Wonderful Person in the World, and I meant every word of it. I still do. Her death felt like the end for me. Not just an end, but the end. But I now see it was actually a beginning. In the days, weeks, and months that followed her passing, the pain and grief were very real, very big. I felt overwhelmed, stuck, sad, scared, lost. I also felt loved. I also felt supported. And in the presence of that love and support from others, I found new questions for myself and my life. What kind of man do I want to be? What kind of impact do I want to have? What kind of legacy do I want to leave? And in those questions, in the tilled soil of grief, new seeds were planted, new roots were set, and a new purpose emerged for me in my life. As I sit here almost 15 years after her passing, which is just crazy to me, I can see more clearly what the seeds have become The pain and grief of that time, in the presence of others' love and support, became growth and purpose. From the pain and grief of losing my mother, I found my life today, my vision for what the type of world I want to help create. I am here to help others grow from their pain. Pain does not have to be punishment. Pain can be a teacher if we have the right support. And I want to be part of that support for others. I want to be part of making sure everyone has that type of support. Now, I miss my mom every single day, but I will admit I am grateful for her death every day too. For in her passing and the pain that followed was a path to me becoming the man I am now, a man who is here to serve and support others, and now a man who is set on creating a better world for his daughters by helping others become more fully themselves. My mom is still one of the most wonderful people in the world. And in her death, she helped me become a better person too, a man of purpose. This year, 2020, 
has been crazy. And in the middle of all the craziness and the chaos, it can be really easy to feel lost, scared, hurt, overwhelmed, stuck, angry. How can someone possibly lead in a time like this? How can someone be a CEO at a time like this? That is the very question our guest, Leslie Feinzig, founder and CEO of the Female Founder Alliance, brings to Jerry today for discussion. In this conversation, we hear more of Leslie's past and her powerful story to becoming the CEO of the Female Founder Alliance. The challenges she faces as a CEO, as a parent, as an immigrant, and how one might find ground in a groundless time. The answer to the how for her, for me, perhaps for you, isn't out there or looking ahead. It is within and it's in our past. For when in doubt, go to purpose. So many of the leaders we speak with, we work with, we hear from are tired or worn down. Perhaps you are too. Taking care of our teams, our families, our communities, doing what we can to keep those around us safe, healthy, and thriving. In the midst of all these noble pursuits, we can forget to tend to our own well-being. This November 13th through 15th, the Reboot team will be facilitating a new kind of virtual retreat designed to help leaders reset, reconnect with themselves and with others and to build inner resilience for the challenging days yet to come. Join us for this unique experience that combines remote resilience practices, coaching exercises, facilitated time in nature, and fellowship with other leaders doing their best to meet this moment with strength, grace, and authenticity. You will leave with a greater awareness of the personal leadership habits and strategies for being the leader you want to be in a time like this. To learn more about this retreat or to apply, head to reboot.io slash weekend. Morning, Leslie. It's nice to see you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's take a minute and if you could just introduce yourself and then we'll sort of dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My name is Leslie Feinzeig. I am the founder and CEO of the Female Founders Alliance. Uh, We are a social purpose corporation that runs a large community of women and non-binary founders of uh, highly scalable tech startups. We started three years ago as a, as a Facebook group, uh, a very humble 25-person Facebook group that just took off from under my feet. At the time, I was a new mom uh, out trying to raise capital for my own startup and uh, hitting a wall after wall after wall. And I started this Facebook group as a way to surround myself with people who might be going through a similar experience than I was to kind of turn the lights on in the room, if you will. And it's turned out to be what might end up being the most substantial, important thing that I do with my life uh, professionally. Um, And three years later, that 25-person Facebook group is a 20,000-strong community uh, all across the country. Um, And that's who I am on... uh, When I'm not online on Zoom (laughs) uh, with my team, um, I am married uh, to a wonderful man and uh, 
I have two little girls, ages four and one. And um, Dora is my oldest and Ruth is my baby. And they're both named after uh, their great grandmothers, honoring, mm. honoring the women that came before them. God bless them. Yeah, they're pretty cute. They're in daycare right now. Uh, otherwise, they've been, they've been <laughs> crashing all of my all of my meetings for the past four months. Um, you know, I've, I've actually when we started sheltering in place, um, it, everything was very raw. But but in the weeks that followed, I started very purposefully including particularly the four year old uh, into mm. my meetings first because we didn't have childcare, which which was uh I mean, <laughs> really hard, I guess is the best yeah. way to say that. Um, but also, I uh, I realized I had an opportunity to um, show my humanity and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really strengthen my, my professional relationships in a very different way. And, um, you know, I sit in a privileged position now because mm -hmm. I am more reputable and I am better known and... You know, at this point in time, people don't really question my commitment to what I'm doing anymore. Right? Like they know that they know that I, I I'm doing it. And so I thought, you know, why don't I just take the opportunity to really show the world what it looks like? And um, and so I started just bringing the, the girls into almost every investor meeting and, and everything I was doing. And um, they love it. And people on the other side love it as well. I, I, I think it's so special to, like, even now I can kind of see into your life a little bit. And, and that mm -hmm. makes you so much more human uh, than mm -hmm. you would be if we were sitting at some, like, corporate office. Yeah. You know, um, you know I want to create space to really talk about the things that are top of mind for you right now. But I feel compelled to respond to the daycare question with a story. So I turned 57 uh, this year, and I have three children. Sam is 30, Emma is 28, and Michael is 23. And uh, when Sam and Emma were rugrats and tiny tots, I worked for a company that had on-site childcare. It was one of the most humanizing experiences of my life to... Uh, to have lunch every day with my kids yeah. and to change diapers at 11.45 every morning um, and to integrate my children into my life. That's beautiful. And I feel super privileged um, to, to have worked um, in an environment uh, that prioritized that and made that available. Um, and looking back now, I realize that uh, as someone who identifies as male um, and to be one of the few fathers who had uh, who, who, who took responsibility for children in, in daycare. And then I became the only father who had more than one child in daycare. Um, which, uh, is, as you can imagine, I had to have lunch with the kids every day. And on the one hand, you know, um, you know, you're trying to, uh, uh, peel the skin from grapes, 
because my four-year-old Sam <laughs> would want to eat that, right? While also being cognizant that my then two-year-old Emma needed a diaper changed, and you know, I'm just balancing all of that, and then rushing back to a meeting with a slather of spaghetti on my crisp white shirt. But the the, the truth is. Um, you know, and I'm experiencing that now so much as people are living their lives in, in this remote way, as so many lucky ones of us are able to continue working in that way, um, that there was something really magical about that. Uh, and so I just want to respond to that and create space for that because uh, so much of what I believe to be true about humane workspaces and about the possibilities for humane workspaces stems not from some intellectual experience of having listened to a great teacher, but in fact having lived and grown as a leader in a seedbed where the female co-founder of the company that I worked for made sure that it was a priority that uh, that family was a priority for us. Um, and it's only now in the hindsight with the, that comes from age that I'm able to realize just how rare an experience that was and how fortunate I was and all of us were to, to grow up in that environment. So. I was reflecting earlier this week that um, this year... We had so many plans and, you know, FFA had conferences planned in like six different cities and I had this like growing speaking opportunities and things like that. And since my girls were born, I don't travel a ton without them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we don't have full-time help at home or anything like that. and. So this year was very much about like, can my husband manage by himself if I travel once or twice a month? And I was going to be hitting the pavement and racking up those miles. And instead, mm -hmm. I have cooked breakfast, lunch and dinner and sat with my girls and my husband every single day for four months. I have given them their bath every evening, put them mm -hmm. in bed every day, like... I never realized that I would miss this if I'd been traveling. Mm -hmm. Not not that I don't want to travel. I I miss <laughs> I miss the pace of my old life, but also my goodness, what a time to be alive. I mean, mm -hmm. the ages that my girls are at right now are mm -hmm. just delicious. Like they're just so cute and cuddly and they're a pain in the butt too sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or a lot of times, you know, my four-year-old mm -hmm. is 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 uh, very much my daughter. She knows her mind and she knows what she wants. And, uh, mm -hmm. and um, she's got a gigantic personality in her tiny little body. Um, but I can tell even in the midst of what has been a super high anxiety period for me, I can tell that I'm going to look at this period of my life with longing mm -hmm. because, you know, every day, same song, every evening, we sing What a Wonderful World, every day, every mm -hmm. single day. 
and it's really special. It's a good night moon kind of time, eh? Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's a dissonance that comes because, as uh, you know, on the one hand, we're having this experience. Some of us are having this experience of closeness and intimacy and a reordering of our priorities and then coupled with the dissonance of the world as a dumpster fire. And one after another, these announcements. And I know that you, you, you wanted to talk through some of those issues and maybe we can, we can, we can move to that and, and, what is on your mind as it relates to all of the anxiety and all of the the shifts that are occurring for FFA, but also for you as a leader? Yeah, you know, the, there's been a lot on my mind these past few months. I Part of that reflection that I was telling you about is, um, you know, I left my last job that was for someone else, like not for myself. Uh, It's going to be five years in August. Five years of foregone earnings. Um, Five years of entrepreneurship with all of the things, right? Like all of the roller coaster, all of it. All of that because I wanted to make something of myself and because I wanted to create the job that I loved and the team that I loved. And and it turns out that when you force me to do that job alone in my basement, I actually don't mm. love it anymore. <laughs> I miss people. <laughs> um, I am not, when this is over, I will not be working remotely. I do not mm-hmm. like having a screen between me and you and me and every mm-hmm. person all day, every day. I think that there's so much that I get from the in-between moments, from the casual conversation. I'm a hugger. I I really, really miss uh, connecting in person. Um, and it it's such a challenge managing a team and a community when everybody is just imploding on the inside, right? And like, you can't be there to comfort each other. You you can't really read cues as well. Um, You know, you you get fatigued the longer you spend talking to each other. So you can't really resolve things. It's just incredibly hard. And And then you add to that, you know, we're pretty public facing and communicating with the world at a time where you just don't know where the, you know, it's really hard to read the room at all times because the Mm -hmm. room is on fire. Mm -hmm. It's just been a really hard few months. One of my favorite uh, quotes of all time, uh, I I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald. I I might be wrong. I have to look that up. And it's something along the lines of, the test of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two opposing truths. Mm-hmm. And and that's life today. Like you said, it's like there's these incredibly special moments and look how we're reevaluating our priorities and all this stuff, but mm-hmm. also 
holy crap, everything is really horrible and hard. And like, I don't know how to be a CEO right now. I like somebody give me instructions. I honestly, half the time, (laughs) half the time, I kind of like sit there and I look around and I'm like, who's the grown up? Like, Mm. am I the grown up? Who's the grown up in the room that's supposed to be? And this is both on the family side and on the professional side where I'm like, what do you mean I'm the one? Like, I I don't feel equipped to make a call on things right now, Um, but I have to because people are looking Mm. to me. It's just incredibly high pressure. Mm. I hear you. The bifurcated experience and the dissonance that can occur from from it. And um, it's a very challenging experience. I mean, you know, we're famous at at Reboot for our red, yellow, green check-ins. And, you know, I I don't think I've checked in um, without an array of colors since the pandemic began. Because on the one hand... Uh, I'm often green and feeling good. And on the other, I remain acutely aware of the world and its broken heart, whether it's because of the release that is so emblematic in the, in the, the, the protests against racial injustice. Um, and and it's a release because because the, the because the injustice has always been with us. That's right. And and there's a there's a there's a more visible uh, experience for those of us who have been racialized as white and and um, uh, sit in that position of privilege where where we're experiencing that which those of us who identify as as other than um, uh, white uh, experience every day. So there's that experience. And then there's this um, profound, what feels like a visceral assault on our rights as human beings, not merely in the United States, but 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 especially in the United States. Yeah. Coupled with economic anxiety of the world turned upside down, coupled, you know, all against a backdrop of, is that person's cough going to kill me? Is my sneeze going to kill somebody else? (laughs) I mean, and I've just described the last three months. I mean, yes. Here we are, mid middle of July, and I'm just describing what life has has been like for the last few months, and and uh, you know I want to reflect back something that you said that was profound and moving, which is quote I don't know how to be a CEO at this time. Well, I'll just add and build upon that. I don't know that anybody knows how to be a CEO at any time. But when you add this experience, and then what I hear and I really resonate with is that almost terrified gasp of, who's the adult in the room? Wait, they're looking at me to be the adult in the room. 
Am I am I naming and reflecting back the experience for you? Yeah, hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's like there is just too much all at once, mm. and all of it, all of it is coming through the same screen, mm. and you know, this week alone. I've sat at this desk looking into this computer and I've done media interviews and I've interviewed candidates and I've had difficult conversations with my team and I've attended a wedding <laughs> and I've talked to my mom and my dad and and then I transitioned to my team stand up and the whole time I'm just thinking well, the airport's open in time for me to see my parents again before they catch COVID, right? Like, you just don't have time to process all of it. Yeah. And did I make the right choice by leaving home and creating this life for myself when at the end of the day, we're all stuck inside and I could be stuck inside with my family, but yeah. I'm not because 15 years ago, I chose to leave them. Um, and is this all worth it? It's just a, it's just a hard year. It's a hard year. In what has always been a hard life. Hmm. I mean, yes, but also a beautiful one, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I find so much beauty in, in joy in life. I. I am the consummate cheerleader. Like I, mm. you know, but right now it just seems like everyone is, is in a dark place. And sometimes even particularly with the past few weeks after, after, um, you know, when we added this reckoning to to the pandemic and the economic upheaval. And then on top of that, like, it just feels like it's not even appropriate to find silver linings. Mm -hmm. um, it just doesn't feel right anymore. And not being able to do that is so antithetical to who I am that I feel like I, this place is not for me right now, like this country, I, you know, I just, what am I doing here? <laughs> now I'm I'm even scared to say that out loud. I've always had and that's something that that we wanted to talk about like I um for for context so I, I moved to America um 15 years ago in August. Mm -hmm. Um I was born and raised in Costa Rica. I'm the granddaughter of uh Holocaust refugees or pre-Holocaust refugees. And You know, I, I I love my country. Costa Rica welcomed me and my family at a time when, when even America wouldn't, right? My, my grandfather, he, he escaped Poland in 1930 uh, with, I think it was a group of 10 or 11 other men. And they went to Ellis Island and they were uh, kicked out. They, they weren't allowed in. Um, 
And they were lucky in that at least they weren't sent back uh, to Europe. So they, they got on a boat and they, the boat kept sailing south and it was going to Colombia and it stopped on the way in Costa Rica, which was a country that none of them had ever even heard of. <laughs> but, you know, the word spread on the boat that uh, Costa Rica was allowing immigrants to come inside the country. And the only requirement that was that you had to have twenty five dollars in cash so that you could support yourself. And these men were poor. Uh, they didn't have $25 each, but they did have $25 in between all 11 of them. Mm-hmm. And so they, the, the story goes that they pulled the money together and then one by one, they like showed the same, the same cash and then <laughs> handed it to the guy behind them. And it, it's like the lore of the Jewish community. Um, and that's how my, my family ended up being in Costa Rica. And, and that's the story of the Jewish diaspora, right? Like that, that's how there's right. Jews all around the world. But I grew up you know, I am Costa Rican born and, and raised. I uh, love my country. I travel there twice a year. My entire family is down there. And when I moved to America, it was because it was for professional reasons, right? I, I thought I, I wanted to do something bigger. And I um, had this uh, miraculous, and I do mean miraculous, <laughs> Um, scholarship to Harvard Business School, um, life-changing for someone like me. Uh, and, and I moved here and for a long time, I really didn't even look back. I just, my God, the opportunities that I've had here have been amazing, even in the context of a really difficult immigration journey with like challenges with every single visa, green card, like everything all the way down to like I was rejected for citizenship under the Trump administration. Like it's been hard at every single step, but not once had I ever thought that I'd made a mistake. But then the past few years, it just, my God, you just wonder like, do these people really even want me here? (laughs) Like, do they want me here? What, what are we doing? You know? And like, oh man, Jerry, like, I gave this speech once and, and I tallied up how much I've paid in taxes and how many jobs I've created. And like, and this was even before the Female Founders Alliance. Through the Female Founders Alliance, like, I've personally helped unlock tens of millions of dollars in venture capital for hundreds of companies. And all of those companies are out there creating jobs and launching products that are going to make the world better because they're made for all of us and not just for some of us. And these companies are creating new role models for my daughters and for all of our kids. I did that. So why the hell do I feel like I should have done it somewhere else? And I'm even scared to say this out loud because I think that like, every time, I mean, it started with a travel ban and then the family separation and then the limitation on the H-1Bs and, and now the F-1s and, you know, it's, we're not that far away from revoking my naturalization. and. Why, why am I fighting? 
I think I wish I wish that more more people would speak with me about this. There's that famous poem from 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 the Holocaust that you know first they came for the communists and I didn't speak up because I was not a communist. And I don't like to draw uh, comparisons between this and the Holocaust. Like I have family that was murdered in the gas chambers, um, and I don't. I you know we we don't compare to that atrocity. But you have to stand up and say something and do something because it just feels like this world doesn't want me here anymore. This, this country doesn't want me here anymore. Leslie, I hear you. And uh, I think you have every right to the feelings that you have. I was born on East 26th Street between Avenue D and Clarendon Road in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> and I speak for millions of Americans when I say you belong here. And I want you here. Thank you. And I understand. And you are right that the promise, and it's only ever been a promise, it's been a promise unrealized since this country was founded. And that is part of the awakening, the reckoning that is going on. Because as Langston Hughes wrote in that famous poem, America was never America for so many people. That's right. That's right. But, but that does not mean that the promise isn't there. And that promise is worth fighting for. And speaking out for and speaking up for. And it is the responsibility of those of us who are in the meat bags that I am in. White cisgendered male, power and privilege to speak and to advocate and to stand, and as my daughter would challenge me, to be a co-conspirator for yeah. the realization of that dream. Imagine how beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. This is not... This feels like a country that would turn away a young Polish immigrant from Ellis Island in the 1930s. And I will remind everyone that this is a country that turned away hundreds of thousands of refugees. This is not a new phenomenon. There's a viciousness about this new phenomenon, but this is not a new phenomenon. I went to look at you know, for the longest time, this the story that they were turned away at Ellis Island was like lore. Mm -hmm. You know, we never really understood why, like what had happened, especially since the America that I of my childhood was 
more of a concept than a reality, right? Because I, I, I was in, in Costa Rica and like America was really great TV and right, like, and the cool computer that my cousins had and <laughs> like that, that was America. It, it was this like just incredibly aspirational place and concept and idea and and so we never really understood why you know were, was it a joke were they always going south and like so i i went in and started to do some research recently um a few years ago uh that i decided to kind of look into my past i went to poland to see where my grandparents had uh lived and it turned out that it was uh it, it was legislation um there was a legislation mm -hmm. passed in 1928 called the johnson reed act and the johnson reed act established that basically immigration quotas from each country um that were dependent on the number of people that were already in america from that region of the world and so it resulted in dramatic limits on the people that were the the undesirables at the time which were jews and uh east asians that's right um and now that i'm here and i'm a naturalized american and a proud one there's so many echoes of the past so many echoes it's like we're not learning yeah i think that um the myth of America was so powerful and alluring. It's like um, many people, not the least of which Americans, projected into the myth the ideals of, of what they would want a country to be. And it gave rise, and it's given rise to this notion of an American exceptionalism. Um, and the truth is that exclusions on immigrations from China, for example, um, go back to the 19th century. And um, it was very specific where under the Chinese Exclusionary Act, I believe, um, only men could come. And so a policy of family separation, as viscerally horrifying as it is right now, has actually been part of the law of the land for well over 100 years. Dear God, I don't think anything gets me as hard as family separation. Right. I, nothing. I mean... Oh my goodness! Right. Well, oh. if you th think back to, to to that shared empathetic moment we had, where you know mm -hmm. you talking about Dora and Ruth brought me back to talking about Sam, Emma, and Michael, and brought tears to my eyes as I related because one of the most universal experiences cross culturally is the experience of 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 of. You know, a baby resting in the in the nook of your shoulder. Absolutely. Right. It's <laughs> part of that human experience 
of being able to connect. And, 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 and again, not everyone has had the privilege or the honor or the wish for that experience, but there's a humanity in that shared experience uh, of togetherness and the, and, the, and the root of that being, being family, however your family is defined. And that, and the notion of separating uh, goes right to the heart of it. Think about, you know, uh, I won't speak uh, from a place of empathetic knowing about surviving pogroms and genocide the way the Holocaust was a genocide. But, but think about family separation in the context of that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think about that a, a lot. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, maybe not a lot, but um, because my, I mean, my family was born of that, right? Like mm -hmm. my grandparents' siblings, um, the ones that didn't make it out of Poland left. They say mm -hmm. that my great-grandmother, my um, uh, on my mom's side, she was able to escape, but not with all of her children. And she passed away in Costa Rica, um, I think maybe in the late 40s or 1950s. And what they say is that she died of a broken heart. Um, that she was never, when, when they learned what had happened. Can you imagine? I can. I often wonder, when I went to Poland to visit uh, Lukov and Jelechov and these, these towns, that, by and large, there's nothing left. Nothing. Right. Like the, the Nazis like burned Poland to the ground. They really did. But all I could think about was like, when I left my home, I left with like a ticket to an amazing future, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. Harvard Business School, look at me, full scholarship. Mm. When my grandparents left, they woke up one morning and they packed what they could and they walked God knows how long and they took a train and then they took a boat and they didn't know what was in front of them. They didn't know if they would ever return. What What is that like? Yeah. How bad must your life be? for you to do that to yourself and your kids. Yeah. You think of like the little boys and girls in Central America, right? Like a region that I'm very intimately familiar with. What do people think that they're escaping? <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what do people think these people are paying the, the laws for? The horrible, right, like, right, right, you know, right. you, you don't uproot yourself on a whim you don't uproot yourself and your family and your babies you're like babies and diapers for god's sake like you don't you don't do that if you're not fundamentally afraid for your life right you don't risk your life trying no. to get yourself safe if your life isn't fundamentally threatened this is not about Absolutely. like taking advantage of, of 
you know, uh, some sort of economic uh, no. means. This is about survival. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I, I'm going to bring you back to your statement. I don't know how to be a CEO right now. <laughs> Are you going to tell me how to be a CEO? That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, a few months back, um, I was in a public forum. I was doing a book reading with Jeff Lawson, who's a client, who's a CEO of Twilio. And he said to me, you know, Jerry, I read your book and finally I understood why for all those years you never fucking told me what to do. I was so <laughs> frustrated. And I said, Jeff, if I actually tell you what to do, it's going to reinforce the notion inside of you that you don't know what to do. So I'm never going to tell you what to do. But I'm going to tell you oh, what to man. do. Oh, man. Well, that's too bad. So, so, uh, so uh, you know, in, in, in the spirit of my teachers who have often responded to my questions with stories, I will tell you another story. Okay. So, and, and, and this is how I am responding as a CEO in this time. And I am not offering this as a prescription, but merely as a description. So I had a dream a few weeks ago. And the dream, uh, my partner, Allie, and I were in a brand new house. Now, we've recently moved. And so um, there was some reality coming in. And, and we were on the first floor of the house when outside it started to rain. And the rain got hot, uh, stronger and stronger, and then the water started to build up. And I could stand, we were standing inside, looking out the windows as the water rose, and, and, and you could see the water from the windows. And so finally I said, come on, we have to get upstairs. We have to go to the second floor. So we went to the second floor. And as we got to the second floor, all of a sudden, I realized that there was a structure, a, a kind of steel structure that was holding up the roof and keeping the house together. I shared the dream with my therapist and we unpacked it. And, I, and there's a couple of things to know about dreams that include flooding. One of the things is that flooding often indicates that the unconscious is overwhelmed. It's just too much. And the dream told me what it was that I should do, which was go upstairs. Go upstairs. Go to the next level. Okay? And what I take from that, because the unconscious is often giving us instructions on what to do with the world, what to do with our feelings. So if we go back to your observation, I don't know how to, how to be a CEO right now. I'm going to suggest to you, go upstairs. And what does that mean? That means the higher order function, the higher faculty. Now, what does that mean in this context? Well, I'll bring your attention back to the work of Frank, Viktor Frankl, whom I, I'm sure you know his work, Man's Search for Meaning. And just to remind, what Frankl sought, Frankl, who survived the death camps of the Holocaust, became a psychoanalyst and a philosopher. What he, what he sought to understand was a very profound question. 
Why did some survive and others not? And I don't mean because that person was unfortunate and got a bullet in their back. But why did some people break and others not? And what he hit upon was the notion of logotherapy. And what logotherapy basically says is that the way to heal ourselves is to go to the second floor. And the second floor in this case is purpose, is meaning. Why do we do what we do? Why? Yes, you got the golden ticket. Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Come to Harvard. Yay. You got the golden ticket. Why? Why? And I think the answer to the why is the answer to the how. Because in the why, you presented two images, two stark contrasts. Your, 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 your grandfather turned away to Ellis Island. What was his first name? Luis. Luis? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Luis, young man, penniless, at the, at the door to the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. Sorry, you don't have the golden ticket. Move on, next. But you, his granddaughter, gets the golden ticket. And so, yes, you've come to the United States and you've helped create all these jobs and you've changed the lives of all of these people identify in different ways as founders. Yes, that's powerful purpose. But perhaps there's another purpose here, which is that your family is here. And fuck those people who question whether or not you should be here. Because this boy from Brooklyn will stand. Shoulder to shoulder. Because my grandparents were not turned away at Ellis Island. They got the golden ticket. And the truth is, there's an endless supply of golden tickets. And so purpose here may be the path about how to be CEO. You look to Luis. (laughs) When he, um, he had a sweetheart Mm -hmm. in Poland. And uh, he landed in Costa Rica, and they worked the fields, uh, and then they uh, he did door-to-door sales, <laughs> and he saved some money, and he sent back money for his sweetheart, mm. Dora. Oh. And they married, and they had a daughter, Ruth. And the purpose are Dora and Ruth, my girls. Oh. They have two sons as well, but I'm not having any more kids. (laughs) But it really, 
it's for them. There's something about bringing a child to this world. And in, in my case, physically, mm. going through the physical, like the, the, the equivalent of a marathon, I pushed Dora for four hours and 20 minutes. Oh. Of, of pushing, of active push. Yeah, that, that sucked. <laughs> that, that was. <laughs> um, by the way, if you can do that, you can do anything. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, bringing a child to this world and being their everything, being their everything. Right? They're so dependent on you, and then slowly they 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 become their own people. I just think it gives you this empathy towards others and and a purpose unlike anything, right? Like if you really let it. And I kind of wish that, you know, when I think back to like, why do I do what I do? I, I really do it for my daughters. I really, really do like, when you look at the written mission of the Female Founders Alliance, <laughs> in our internal documents you know it's actually the vision the vision is for the world's top business leaders to be more representative of the world that they lead and serve by the time Dora graduates from college mm -hmm. so we got we got 18 years <laughs> Um, 10, if you ask my husband who thinks that uh, mm -hmm. we have a little Doogie Hauser, but we don't, she's a normal kid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it really all goes back to, we are here for a short brief time and we measure our lives or I measure my life by what I create for the girls that I brought into this world and hopefully leave it a little better than I found it. And I, I wish, I wish that more people who were primary caretakers of their children were also primary caretakers of the world's biggest companies. I really do. Like, mm -hmm. I wish that like, the biggest CEOs and like the most powerful investors we're having lunch with our kids every day, like you did. And mm. we're not reliant on an army of servants and a stay-at-home wife or mm. partner. Mm. I wish that they had that experience of like, scrambling to find the infant Tylenol at 3 a.m. because mm. you think maybe they're teething, but really you have no idea because they just won't stop crying and you're just so tired. And then you still have to be human in the morning and put makeup on and mm -hmm. show up and work on like systems and technologies and, and remember that all of the stuff that you're working on is for that little one who's in pain because they're teething. That's what I wish for. And that's what I, that's why I do what I do. I hear you and I, and, uh, I think that, that that feels like the second floor that you can go to to get above the overwhelm. And if I can build upon that and offer something to consider, um, 
there's a transgenerational experience going on here, even in your own story. Um, because, of course, there are two Ruths and two, and two Doris. Yeah. And so consciously, you may only be doing this for your daughters. But I think that um, your grandmother and your mother are very aware. And it is not just the future generation for whom we live out our purpose, but it's to live into the dream of our ancestors. Because in addition, your Luis left the pogroms because he believed in the future. He did not know that that future would be a little bundle called Dora whose mother will found the Female Founders Alliance. He didn't know that specifically, but at some transgenerational, transpersonal experience, the purpose uh, uh, exists and is embodied in all the generations. I do what I do, not merely for my children, but to live out the experience of Dominic Guido the Iceman who, who traveled from Palo de Col in a, in a Puglia in, outside of Bari in Italy and made his way through Ellis Island, only to then send back money to create opportunity for brothers and sisters and cousins and, right? And, and I live into his entrepreneurial dream every time I coach an entrepreneur. I love that. And so maybe the answer to the, to the implicit question in the observation is, I don't know how to be a CEO at this time. It's to remember. Remember both generations. Remember both look look to the past and to the future. It's hard because you're that bridge. There's just so much pain. What was that pain for, other than for the future? Yeah. You 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 went through four and a half hours of pain <laughs> for Dora. Yeah. Oof. Would you take away that pain? If it meant no Dora? No. No. So this is not silver lining. This is purpose. This is resources. Think of the strength of those generations who survived the pogroms. Think of the strength of those generations who survived watching family members or knowing family members were or are being murdered. You carry that. I carry it. I carry. When um, a few years ago, I think it was around the time that I was engaged to be married, uh, and my mom came to visit. She visit. She used to visit frequently before COVID. 
and I remember we were we were at a museum and there was some exhibit on cooking mm. and um and so we started talking about uh my grandma's cooking my grandma on the other side this is like Sarah uh, my mom's mom and I'm I'm a fan of cooking and baking it's it's very kind of um it's a very zen experience for me. I mm. just love the chemistry of the kitchen, and especially if I can spend some time alone. Um, and so I asked my mom, like, where are her recipes? Mm. Right? Like, who has grandma's recipes? And she said, I, we don't have them. We, and I said, why? And she said, because she never learned how to read and write properly. Mm. I never knew that. And it broke my heart in a million pieces. My grandma on my mom's side was forced into marriage at 13 years old mm. with a man who was 28. Mm. She was so scared of him they said <laughs> this is my grandfather who i love by the way i love mm. him as a child too right like mm. he was forced into it too mm. she had a daughter who was severely mentally disabled mm. she never finished elementary school she had another daughter that she buried way too young. And then she had my mom. She she just had such a difficult life. And when 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 she died, um we were sitting at the Shiva, right? Like the when when Jews die, you do this like one week of mourning where you sit at the person's home and, and people come and basically they bring you food and, mm -hmm. and comfort. We were sitting at the Shiva and everybody just kept saying, oh, she had such a hard life. She had such a hard life. And I was like, that's not how I want to think of my grandmother, right? Because to me, she was booby. She was mm. all kind of love and comfort. And um, But she did. She, you know. And I think a lot about, okay, like, I'm two generations away from a forced marriage at 13 years old and taking her out of elementary school so that she never learned how to read and write properly. Two generations away from that is is the, the golden ticket Harvard graduate. Imagine what my daughters can do if we let them. Mm -hmm. In a what is a very full circle moment <laughs> right now. It's feeling like a very full circle moment. Um, when my grandma died, it was uh, December 30th, uh, 2004. Three weeks before that, I sat down and I took a GMAT. Uh, a GMAT test that at the time in Costa Rica, they only offered it twice a year, once in December, once in May. And it was an all or nothing moment for me. The deadline to apply to Harvard was January 7th. Mm. And in between that GMAT and that deadline, 
I sat for a week of Shiva mm. for my grandmother. And I sat there and I wrote my essays about why they should admit me. And I stood up and I read them aloud <laughs> to mm. my big brother. And he pushed me and pushed me and said, your essays are not ready until you blush when you read them out loud. Mm. And that's how I ended up here. I guess I carry too much of the past with me. Too much? Well, not too much, but like, there's a lot for me to live up to because I feel like I owe them that. I, I hear that. I honor my family with my work. It is possible to see that less is a burden and more as a resource. And the resource is uh, their strength. Um, consider the wishes that they hold for you. What do you think? What do you think those are? I was so young. I. What does Louis? What would Louise say? I never met him. What would he say? He died in his forties. Ask him. Yeah, right there. You know. It's hard for me to conceive of a man of that strength looking at you and saying, you should carry a burden. <laughs> it is easy for me to see him sitting there quelling to all of his friends about what an extraordinary person <laughs> Leslie is. Yeah, see, I'm not above you using a little Yiddish. <laughs> Appropriate ease of Yiddish is yeah. always appreciated. <laughs> the, I, there's a whole generation of of family members who are sitting around cavelling. That's right. That's right. They're proud. I I wish for nothing more than to make them proud. You have. I hope so. Right. That's the purpose. That and your Dora and your Ruth connected. That's that second floor. That's the way. Right. You stay connected to remembering who you are. Remembering the past and the future and staying connected to that as a source of inspiration, as a source of strength so that you can then go forward and figure out the day-to-day. -day. And the day-to-day -day is hard. No question about it. It's super hard, and it's made harder every day by mendacity and the forces of evil. Yeah. But we are not the first generation to battle mendacity and the forces of evil. And we won't be the last. This is, this is our work. And it's hard. 
and we stand shoulder to shoulder, me with you, you with others. And we say, okay, we have work to do. Leslie, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This was an extraordinary experience for me. And for me as well. You know, um, uh, to, to meet someone who is so well connected with the stories of their life and, and to see that relationship, my, my deep and profound wish for you to, is for you to know that um, this kid from Brooklyn is with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I am with you as well. I feel that. Thanks for coming on the show and, and uh, good luck with all of your endeavors. Thank you, Jerry. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Jerry Colonna. Thanks for listening to the Reboot Podcast. Check out my book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. I hope it really moves you.